Hello and welcome to the fifth podcast of English 264 Online. In this episode, I'll talk about William Wordsworth, one of the most important and most influential of all of the Romantics, and perhaps the one who had the greatest effect on the direction of modern poetry. For extensive biographical information about William Wordsworth, you can certainly look in your textbook. Um, just very briefly, he was born in 1770 uh, in the Lake District area of England, consisting of mountains and lakes sheep, uh, not particularly well industrialized or, or developed even today, uh, much less in his day. His father was a steward on a large estate, and so he had certain advantages um, not available to William Blake, particularly advantages of education. He received a, a very good grammar school education. Uh, he was able to go to Cambridge University and reach a higher education. Again, that would not have been part of Blake's uh, background. His mother died when he was eight years old, and his father died when he was 13, but he had fairly supportive uh, relatives and guardians who, who did fund his education at Cambridge. Um, he graduated from Cambridge with a fairly indistinguished, undistinguished academic record in 1791 and went to France. Um, so he was in France a couple of years after the fall of the Bastille and caught up in the fervor of the new revolutionary movement uh, caught up in the new possibilities of hope, of liberty, of equality. Uh, he was definitely, at least at that stage in his life, an ardent supporter of revolutionary causes. In 1795, he received a legacy from a college friend which enabled him to devote himself to poetry. In 1797, Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who, will read, who, will, who he will be reading about and I will be talking about in the next podcast, became close friends, uh, talked about new possibilities for poetry, new systems of thinking and writing about humans and nature, and in this extremely fertile collaboration, produced um, one of the most influential books of poetry, single books of poetry, throughout the 19th century. They were especially concerned with how poetry could examine human psychology, how it could examine the value and the strangeness, the mystery and the grandeur of human nature and the human mind. And in 1798, they published together, anonymously, a book of poems entitled Lyrical Ballads and a Few Other Poems, a collection of what was to be revolutionary poetry, which was supposed to reveal something of the real complexity of all human experience, the strangeness of everyday life. Uh, and it explored and expressed these feelings in a rich variety of ways. The first edition began with Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which you will be reading and ended with Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, uh, one of the readings for today, which falls under the category of one of the few other poems from the subtitle. The second edition, published in 1800, um, it was expanded into two volumes, um, becoming much less of a collaboration between the two and much more of a Wordsworth project. And in this second edition, he produced a preface to explain his, his new ideas about poetry, and to uh, establish how his version of poetry was different from what had come before. And I'll, I wanted to talk about that in, for a few minutes because I think it's a vitally important document. Perhaps the first statement, the first major critical statement by a major post-industrial revolution, uh, that is, a first modern poet, on the nature of poetry and the poet and the audience and the role of poetry in the new world. So it, it's extremely important as a, as a document explaining what new directions poetry was getting ready to take and, in fact, was taking from their work. Now, in order to understand how Wordsworth's poetry was different, Wordsworth and Coleridge's, po Coleridge's poetry, it's important to get some sense of what poetry was like that preceded it. And if you look in the preface on page 209 in our book, 
you have an example of pre Wordsworthian poetry. Um, probably not an um, a arbitrary example. I'm sure Wordsworth chose it for its possibility of, of indicating the, the the problems with poetry as he saw it. But this is a a sonnet by uh, Thomas Gray that begins, In vain to me the smiling mornings shine, and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire. The birds in vain their amorous descant join, or cheerful fields resume their green attire. Now this is a, a pretty good example of 18th century verse uh, in that it tends to be elevated in style. It uses what's called poetic diction, which separates poetry from prose. Uh, it, use, it tends to use a heavy cluster of allusions to classical mythology. Um, so, for example, the phrase, reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire, is a way of saying the sun comes up. But rather than just saying the sun comes up, which is not elevated, not poetical enough for 18th century tastes, you distance the, uh, the object from the language, from the everyday language. Uh, Phoebus was the island where the Greek god Apollo, the god of the sun, was born. And so it became one of the names of, of Apollo, uh, and by extension, of the sun. Reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire, um, personifies the sun, uh, personifies it along the lines of, of classical mythology. Uh, or the line, the birds in vain their amorous descant join, means the birds sing, but again it, it uses more elevated language. A descant is a more uh, Latinate word for, for a song. Wordsworth's point in quoting this is to differentiate these lines from other lines found in the same poem. Uh, a little lower, he quotes in, in italics, a different object do these eyes require. My lonely anguish melts no heart but mine. And he says, uh, after quoting the poem, it will easily be perceived that the only part of this sonnet which is of any value is the lines printed in italics. It is equally obvious that except in the rhyme and in the use of the single word fruitless for fruitlessly, which is so far a defect, the language of these lines does in no respect differ from that of prose. Now, the reason he's arguing this is that it was uh, one of the standard topics of 18th century debate. What's the difference between poetry and prose? Why is poetry better than prose? Why is poetry more elevated? And one of the uh, arguments was that because it uses different language, it uses different syntax, it uses a, a different style, it's about different subject matter, Wordsworth's trying to break down the barrier between the two and is... Uh, is in fact countering the argument against his own poetry that it was prosaic, that it was no different from prose, by saying that no good poetry is, and that what both poetry and prose are about uh, are ideas and human emotions. And so it doesn't matter the format. It, um, you speak directly, you speak from the heart, you use everyday language to convey great ideas. And it's the ideas that count, not all the ornamental trappings that surround them. He also states, on page 206 in the preface, The principal object, then, which I proposed to myself in these poems, was to choose incidents and situations from common life, and to relate or describe them throughout, as far as was possible, in a selection of language really used by men, and at the same time to throw over them a certain coloring of imagination, whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual way, and further, and above all, to make these incidents and situations interesting by tracing in them truly, though not ostentatiously, the primary laws of our nature, chiefly as far as regards the manner in which we associate ideas in a state of excitement. All right, a fairly long quotation, a fairly long sentence, but again, it, uh, it's important because it encapsulates a number of his purposes in, in poetry and what separates, distinguishes his poetry from that uh, came before it. 
uh, such as what language he uses to, um, to use, who he writes about, the idea that he has behind the writing, and the psychological interest he has in, in presenting as truthfully as possible the way the mind works, not just in the characters, but also tracing it uh, on the part of the reader as he is uh, experiencing this point. The psychological aspect is particularly important for him because he thinks, given the culture in which he lived, people are getting more and more prone to be immune to or, or merely ignorant of the relationship of one human being to another. Um, they are losing that capacity for empathy, that capacity for sympathizing with others. He writes on page 208, For a multitude of causes unknown to former times are now acting with a combined force to blunt the discriminating powers of the mind and unfitting it for all voluntary exertion to reduce it to a state of almost savage torpor. The most effective of these causes are the great national events which are daily taking place, uh, that is, the, the revolutions, and the increasing accumulation of men in cities, urbanization, where the uniformity of their occupations produces a craving for extraordinary incident, where in industrialism makes one day more and more like another, where there's a repetitive motion, a division of labor in, into smaller and smaller units, which the rapid communication of intelligence hourly gratifies, that is, where there's mass media, which enables people to learn the news of these revolutionary events and of other sensational events uh, more and more rapidly, and to be inundated with news. Um, at the same time that their lives become more and more mundane, more and more regular, more and more regulated. The effect, he argues, is to create uh, a thirst for sensation, a thirst for distraction from their lives, and uh, which is being filled by what he calls frantic novels, sickly and stupid German tragedies, and deluges of idle and extravagant stories in verse. Uh, he, he writes, When I think upon this degrading thirst after outrageous stimulation, I am almost ashamed to have spoken of the feeble effort with which I have endeavored to counteract it. But nevertheless, he thinks this book of poems does counteract it. Two other points that I want to call your attention to in the preface is first when he says, who is a poet or what is a poet? Tries to define the role of a poet. And he responds, he is a man speaking to men. A man, it is true, endued with more lively sensibility, more enthusiasm and tenderness, who has a greater knowledge of human nature and a more comprehensive soul than are supposed to be common among mankind. But nevertheless, he is essentially a human being who talks to people on a human level and therefore can be understood by any reader. He's removing the idea of the poet from some elevated, inspired bard who is distant from humans, who cannot be fully understood by them. Second, he writes on page 212, I have said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. Again, this is important because he's arguing uh, for the role of memory in the past and also of uh, distance from, this, from the original emotional moment in his poetry. So again, what he tries to do is often draw on events from childhood, from chance meetings with individuals. Uh, often years later, he's able to transmute this experience into a poem. So, if this is his theory of poetry, let's look at a couple of examples of his poems uh, here, and then I'll, I'll imagine you can look at plenty of examples on your own from the reading assignment to see to what extent his theories are, are worked out into practice. I wanted to look first at a poem on page 197, Simon Lee, the Old Huntsman, with an incident in which he was concerned. This apparently revolutionary poem begins in a fairly unostentatious way. On page 197, he begins, 
In the sweet shire of Cardigan, not far from pleasant Ivor Hall, an old man dwells, a little man, I've heard he once was tall. Of years he has upon his back, no doubt, a burthen weighty. He says he is threescore and ten, but others say he's eighty. The reader might be confused at this point whether this is going to be a comic poem or a tragic poem, or um, but it seems at least to be telling a story, and the reader expects to find out more information about this Simon Lee, although his age is perhaps not known, um, although he has come, gone from being a tall man to a little man. There's some confusion at the beginning about Simon Lee, but at least the reader is perhaps... Uh, thinking that this poem will convey a story about him. Whether that's going to be a comic or tragic story, uh, it's not really clear from the title, subtitle, or opening stanza. And the reader reading on will find out that Simon Lee was a huntsman, uh, he ran with the hounds for a, a large landed gentry, he was a servant for a lord who employed him on fox hunts and other types of hunting occasions. He had in his youth been notable for his stamina and his speed and his joy in the hunt. And now that he's 70 or 80, he's lost that stamina. He's lost that strength. He's dwindled down, uh, has problems with the circulation, has weak ankles. Uh, certainly most 18th century poets, Dryden or Johnson or Pope, would not have referred to swollen ankles. That's just uh, too vulgar a topic to deal with in something as elevated as poetry. But Wordsworth specifically refers to swollen ankles, and in fact refers to it twice. And Simon Lee, now the weakest in the village, lives with his um, his elderly wife, trying to scrape out a, mere, a bare existence. His employer is dead. Um, he's, un he's unemployed, nearly um, nearly hopeless, nearly dead, as one foot in the grave. On page 199, after the setup for a story, the narrator, uh, Wordsworth's speaker, surprisingly says this. Few months of life has he in store, as he to you will tell, for still the more he works, the more his poor old ankles swell. My gentle reader, I perceive how patiently you've waited, and I'm afraid that you expect some tale will be related. And of course the reader does. The reader has has been reading a setup for a narrative, the exposition for a story, and naturally expects a story to be delivered. Wordsworth writes on, O reader, had you in your mind such stores as silent thought can bring, O gentle reader, you would find a tale in everything. What's more I have to say is short, I hope you'll kindly take it. It is no tale, but should you think, perhaps a tale you'll make it. Remember from the preface, part of Wordsworth's agenda is to reinforce these uh, connections between human beings, reinforce the sense of empathy, cause people to think about the state of others, rather than abusing them, or deriding them, or making jokes about them, or merely ignoring them, to begin to build up these connections, especially with the most vulnerable people in society. Like Blake's chimney sweepers, Wordsworth's old huntsman represents the have-nots in this society, and those on the outskirts of, of it, those who poetry would generally have seen as, as insignificant or even inappropriate in poetry. And you have a, a brief anecdote where the narrator comes across Simon Lee trying to root up a, a, a stump of rotten wood. Uh, he's unable to do it. The narrator offers to help and with one blow breaks the, the stump, breaks the root, and uh, helps him out. And Simon Lee responds with tears of gratitude, with overwhelming, profusive praise. Um, and then the, re the narrator's response is interesting. I've heard of hearts unkind, kind deeds, with coldness still returning. Alas, the gratitude of men has oftener left me mourning. 
and of course the reader might wonder why. Um, you might assume he would be grateful for the gratitude from Simon Lee, or might have his faith in human re uh, nature restored, uh, but instead he feels sad about this gratitude, perhaps thinking of his own future, uh, when he's as old as Simon Lee, whether someone will be there to help him, or perhaps sad over what a little thing it was for him, what a big thing it was for Simon Lee. In any case, Wordsworth does not tell you how to interpret it. He gives you clues that you will understand it if you think about it. You'll make a tale of it, but that's your job as the reader, to apply it, to dwell on it, to let it um, linger in your mind. Uh, and this is what makes Wordsworth's poems not the simplistic uh, accounts of nature and, and common people it might seem to be, but makes it much more complicated. He has a, an agenda to his poems, even if it is not always clear on the surface. In fact, it's not usually clear on the surface what that is. And it's up to the reader. He specifically wants to involve the reader in thinking about it. In We Are Seven, for instance, you have an adult narrator talking to a child, a dispute over the number of people in the child's family. Presumably, Wordsworth was an adult when he wrote it. Presumably, the reader of the poem is likely to be an adult. Nevertheless, the, the purpose of the poem is to cause, I think, the reader to sympathize with the child's perspective and to see it as in some ways superior to what the adult thinks in terms of who counts and who gets to count. The final poem I want to talk about today is the poem that ended that first volume of the Lyrical Ballads. On page 202 begins, Lines written a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. Uh, Wordsworth in his youth had a, a propensity towards long titles and subtitles. But the purpose, the title is significant in that, uh, one, um, this was a scene, a, a nature scene on a river between the border of England and Wales. Um, I guess the landmark is Tintern Abbey, although the abbey is never actually seen or visited in the context of the poem. But it's a natural scene that Wordsworth had been to before. He's revisiting it. Uh, and taking with him his sister, Dorothy, whom we will look at her own writings uh, at another day. And they're visiting it on July 13th, so the day before Bastille Day, um, nine years, ninth anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. And again, whether that's significant or not, or whether merely historically accurate, but they did take a, a trip there during that time. And in the poem, he's meditating on what he sees, but more on what the effect of having seen it before, five years previously, what the effect of him is memory and nature, uh, what the effect is likely to be on his sister when she's who's seeing this for the first time and what her memories might be, um, and primarily what the, the relationship of the mind and memory and nature are. So very big topics conveyed in a very different kind of poem than the ones we saw before. Um, Simon Lee is a, an example of a, of a narrative poem. We Are Seven is a narrative poem. Um, both of those are more along the lines of lyrical ballads in the sense that they, they tell a story, they are lyric poetry, which tends to be musical and also uh, directly emotional. This is one of those few other poems in that he, here he uses blank verse, uh, that is, unrhymed iambic pentameter, uh, which is the default mode for serious poetry in English. John Milton's Paradise Lost, an example of a poem which uses blank verse. On page 203, there's a passage which, which is, a, I think, one of the key sections of this poem and helps to understand not only Wordsworth's 
idea of nature, but also the Romantics in general, and why they spent so much time talking about nature. He is trying to express what the memory of this place has been, and he writes, Though absent long, these forms of beauty have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness, sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the hearth, along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less I trust to them I may have owed another gift, of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burthen of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy we see into the life of things. Now note there's a number of different levels of relationship of mind and memory and nature here. First, I may have owed to them sensation sweet when he's in city. So his memory of nature helps make him feel better when he's not in nature, when he's in a town or in a city, uh, when he, he's uh, depressed by his location, he can think about nature and it can make him feel better. Second, feelings too of unremembered pleasure, uh, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Here he's arguing that uh, being exposure to nature helps make you a better person. Uh, it helps make you kinder to others. It helps produce, uh, has a positive influence on your behavior. Uh, then another gift, uh, the burden of mystery, that sense of, of depression about uh, why people are unhappy, why society tends to make uh, humans miserable as opposed to the, the joy that you find among natural objects in the poem. Um, that immediately precedes this one, lines written in early spring, you have happy nature and he laments what man has made of man. And this is the burden of the mystery. Why are people unhappy? Why do they live this life? And he argues, or feels that, it's really more of a feeling than an argument, that exposure to nature can help lift that mood, can help give answers to those kinds of questions. And he also says, at, at, he can feel in exposure to nature a contact with a living soul. Now, if he were more uh, orthodox in his, in his religious views, was a, more of an orthodox Christian, he might have called this the Holy Spirit. Uh, but he is not, at least not at this point in his life. He refers to himself as a worshiper of nature, and in nature he finds this divine presence, this living soul. It, it's not uh, empty nature, it's not dead nature. There is a force in nature which helps to shape the um, experiences and reactions uh, to make you a better person. And he sees into the life of things, uh, just as in lines written in early spring, he saw into the life, the secret life of plants, uh, which are, are joyful in their, in their lives that they live. They are not um, unconscious, they are not inanimate, they, are, they have a certain degree of happiness. He can't prove it, but he, he, he feels it. Now here Wordsworth seems to be moving into Blakeian territory of visionary states of knowledge, of a, a highly mystical apprehension of, of events. But there's some differences between Blake and Wordsworth, of one of which Wordsworth, as a university-educated man, 
educated in, in the age and in, in reason and logic, recognizes that all of this information, all of this idea about seeing into the life of things might strike the reader as odd. And he adds, If this be but a vain belief, yet, oh, how oft in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan Why, thou wanderer through the wood, how often has my spirit turned to thee? Wordsworth is a different kind of romantic from Blake. He recognizes that it may be a vain belief, it isn't true just because he feels it, but he's convinced it's mostly true just because he feels it strongly enough. This firm persuasion, as Blake puts it, convinces him that his apprehension of this life in nature is in fact true. And he continues on this topic in that poem a little bit later, where he says on page 204, In nature, um, I have learned to look on nature not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity, not harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the minds of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. This presence, this force, this um, life in nature would seem to use some of the traditional imagery of of understanding of God, except that here he is not talking about a Christian deity, but about nature itself and about a force there. And he sees it not just in setting suns and the ocean and the sky, but also in the mind of man. He sees man as not being alienated from nature unless he makes himself so, but as part of nature, as natural as a natural being. He continues, Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. And again, I would point out that this concession that it's not just what the eye and ear perceive, but also what they half create, that it's the mind at work uh, perceiving this life in nature as well as the life in nature itself. It's certainly possible that Wordsworth and other romantics emphasize the primacy of nature because nature itself was under attack uh, with industrialism, with um, development, with pollution, um, and that he sees nature in its disappearing state as being even more valuable and important. But it's certainly the case that Wordsworth is most famous as a poet of nature uh, who influenced what poets after him talked about and the way they talked about it. They don't just admire a sunset, but they see the sunset as being of higher significance, of um, as a sign, in, as Blake would see it, a sign of the infinite, or as Wordsworth would see it, as an emblem for the working of the mind and nature and how the two are interfitted for each other, uh, how the, the, the great plan that seems to be there, put there by this nameless being in nature, um, to give us a home, to give us a welcome. The final comment I want to make about Wordsworth is to draw your attention to one of the companion readings on page 228, 
a critic, Francis Jeffrey, attacks Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey as part of a, a group of rebels, uh, and the language he uses to describe their poetry in this book review seems specifically chosen to demonize them. He compares them to heretics and dissenters from established religion. He compares them to conspirators trying to undermine the politics of, of nature, the established rules of order. Uh, he refers to Wordsworth's preface to lyrical ballads as a manifesto, as uh, one of their most flagrant acts of hostility. And he generally attacks the assumptions that Wordsworth has about the nature of everyday language and its uh, appropriateness for poetry. Um, it's certainly easy to forget that Wordsworth was a radical, was a revolutionary in his day, that he did alter the course of modern poetry. He did, in fact, win in terms of his poetical theories. Much later poetry, almost all later poetry, is influenced by him in some way or another. But it's, help, it's easy to forget how new he was, and reading Jeffrey's essay uh, or review can help reestablish that, um, that awareness of how dangerous this seemed and how it seemed to be tied in with the political revolutions uh, going on at the same time in France. Uh, so he, he was a, a dangerous man, a dangerous poet, because of his new ideas. But for us, he just seems to be the old traditional poet. And in fact, by the time of his death, his theories had won out. He was named as the Poet Laureate in, in the 1840s, that is, as the officially appointed court poet representing England. By that point, he had become the status quo. He, he had become the establishment. Uh, and the, the role for later poets like Shelley and Byron and Keats is as much to be wary of him, to undermine him, to get out from under his shadow, as it is to learn from him and emulate him. Uh, so watch for these trends, uh, watch for these connections and influences as you do, as you read on. Next time, I'll talk about Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Dorothy Wordsworth, William's sister. Until then, thank you and goodbye.